everyone how's it going welcome back to christ is the cure we are continuing through nicaea and we are past the halfway mark actually in the creed um let's see we have this episode um and then two more and then we're done with the clause on jesus and we'll move into the holy spirit Uh, that said after the line and coming again in the glory to judge the living and the dead his kingdom shall have no end I want to take a week or two break from the podcast to prep up for the Holy Spirit to see how I want to structure it, how I want to break it up, um, and ultimately decide whether or not I'm going to bother with going into the filioque clause. So with that said, today we are covering um, crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Before we begin, I just want to say that Christ of the Cure is listener-supported, and so if you have been blessed by Christ of the Cure, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. We are getting close to our goal for the 2022 and 2023 year, but we're not quite there. Um, So yeah, please pray about it and uh, consider... You know, looking into the different tiers at, again, patreon.com forward slash crisis the cure. And if you can't do that, um, I just want to say still thank you for being a listener and for your support. Uh, All the encouragement that I get from you guys is fantastic. I'm glad that what we're doing here has been impactful in some shape or form. And so today we are going to press on and we're going to cover the subject a little bit differently than we've done the other subjects. Uh, It's going to be a little bit more of an exegetical focus. And so let's start with the historical aspects. So um, our phrase again is crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this is one of the easiest sections to outline when it comes to our historical confession, right? Because the church universal placed this reality in the heart of the creed. It's in the middle, right? It is front and center. And uh, this confession was a note of the surpassing love of God and the redemption of a people because of Christ. Uh, The Christian church's ability to link their Savior to a particular location under a particular prefect, uh, Pontius Pilate, is a beautiful historical truth, this historicity of the Christian faith. Um, Linking your founder in history is a powerful thing. Uh, The confession that Jesus was crucified uh, was an offense to the social world of the Romans. For those within the Greco-Roman context, being crucified was the lowest of low, and all of your social accolades are just gone. It's that that's that. And everyone who's attached to you is is lower than dirt because they're associated with the one who's been crucified. And really there's a lot of rich history and discussion that can go into that, but that's that's the offense. The, the crucifixion was low. And then for the Jews, they were expecting the Messiah to come in and take over Rome. So the political agenda of the Jews was, was thwarted at the cross too. So it's offense to both the Gentiles and the Jew. 
And yet you have the Christians who recognize the beauty of Jesus Christ who suffered and who was buried. And of course, on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Now, it is true within the early church, there were various theories on the atonement. Um, but where Christians ultimately agreed, whether in uh, passion or passion and resurrection, was that Christ is both the victim and the victor in some sense. Okay, and so that's that's kind of that balance. Uh, we can confess today that the atonement is multifaceted. Usually, there's not one theory of atonement that people will latch on to. Uh, and I still think that that's important to keep in mind here whenever we talk about the atonement. It is a temptation to think of Christ as only a victim on the cross, when in fact, uh, how Christ was viewed was predominantly as a victor. He had accomplished the work of the triune God in being the means through which redemption for corrupt men could uh, come. He took the failures of our father, the flesh, Adam, and he lived as Adam ought to have lived. Where Adam sinned, Jesus was sinless. Where Adam fell, Jesus stood. While Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. And while Adam gave us birth into sin, Jesus provided us with birth into new life. Adam brought the curse. Jesus redeems us from the curse. Adam gave into temptation when he had the glory of the garden, and Jesus overcame temptation in a desert of desolation. Adam ate from the forbidden tree while Jesus died on the accursed tree, and Adam lost the tree of life while Jesus beckons us back to the tree of life. While it is a heavy thing to realize that Jesus was crucified for our sins, it is ultimately the victor Christ on the cross who lived perfectly to fulfill the righteousness required of humanity. And you see that in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 3, Matthew 5, 15, etc. While Christ's pain and death is, you know, something worth grieving, Jesus still shifts the entire paradigm by turning this device of death into an instrument of life. While Jesus' suffering was real and dark, the cross is ultimately a sign of the culmination of Jesus' perfect life confirmed by his resurrection and ascension. And that's what you see in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So it is in Christ, when we are united to him, that we have been given this promised hope of a transformed body and incorruptibility along with immortality. This is the victorious new life that Jesus has given us through the death, burial, and resurrection. Our perishable flesh will become imperishable, and our mortal bodies will become immortal. As Paul says, Then it shall come to pass in saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 53-56. The whole chapter is fantastic. And he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 57. Athanasius in his work on the incarnation 27.2 says, but now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. For all who believe in Christ tread him, that is death, under as nothing and choose rather to die than to deny the faith in Christ. For they verily know that when they die, they are not destroyed but actually begin to live and become incorruptible through the resurrection. So it's a great victory of Christ and a great victory for us in Christ to have Jesus being united to us because of God's great love. So for our biblical support, we're going to do something a little bit different. Like I said, we're going to be looking at Mark 15, 24 through 39. 
So if you want to open up your Bible and follow along, we can do that. We'll read through the text, we'll briefly walk through it by section, and then we'll discuss the literary details, and then we'll restate the theology of the passage. And then, of course, we'll close with applications to be consistent. Um, So Mark 15, starting in verse 24, and if you're curious, I'm using my ESV today. Um, And this is Jesus' crucifixion. So verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether or not Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, there really is a lot in this passage that we can go over, but let's start with verse 24 through 25. So the tensions of Mark have been building up to this particular moment. Uh, This is the dramatic way that Mark just hammers out events. And now we reach this culmination. And our target text opens up with the crucifixion occurring alongside a quotation of Psalm 22. And this quotation of Psalm 22 is crucial, and that's going to be kind of the focal point. And you'll see how that ties in to um, my preliminary discussion on the the history of this particular line of the creed. So first, let's talk about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal method of execution, right? It was popular within the Roman Empire, which was considered to be particularly painful and humiliating. Uh, The practice really has little description in regards to uh, its specific procedure, but authors spoke a lot about the brutality of the method. The method was considered cruel and that it would not damage vital organs, and thus it would be a slow death with bleeding and asphyxiation. So crucifixion would be reserved for those of the lowest status, dangerous criminals, and insurrectionists, which is um, significant for our historical context and what Jesus was actually charged with. So it would be public while the individual being crucified would be stripped of his clothing, nailed to a stake or a cross, uh, and placed on travel routes wherein different individuals would be able to mock them uh, and ridicule those as they traveled along the road. Additionally, uh, under Roman practice, a person who was crucified was denied burial, and the corpse usually was left on the cross uh, for the birds. And so whenever we see that Jesus was buried, that's pretty remarkable um, allowance for Pilate. So within our text, Mark begins with the citation of Psalm 22. Uh, And he will refer to this psalm three times in verses 24, 29, and 34. This psalm becomes an apologetic 
for the kingship of Christ, a major theme in Mark. Uh, this idea of the power of Christ, the Lord and authority of Christ. So in this text, we find that Jesus is linked to David because of the psalm. Uh, this is a psalm of David. It's classified primarily as a lament, but the psalm contains various elements and ends in praise. Uh, the psalm pictures David being distant from God. Um, he is mocked and humiliated by his enemies, and his cry for divine intervention is answered in Psalm 22.11. This psalm's presence in Mark is significant. You have, that, again, that link between David to Christ, showing the parallels between the two, while indicating that Jesus of Nazareth is, in actuality, the king of Israel. So we see this flow of Mark uh, with Psalm 22, in that Mark is making intentional connections to Jesus as the king of Israel, and he expects the readers to understand what is coming and that triumphant end of Psalm 22. See, whenever one would quote a psalm, for example, the whole psalm would come to mind. We usually do the same thing with music today. If we think of a song, we usually start thinking about the whole song and we can continue it if we know it, right? So if these people know this psalm, they know that while this king is being mocked, humiliated, and ridiculed, it ends with vindication and triumph. And so this text being cited here is saying this is not only the king who is the seed of David, but he is also going to be triumphant. So Mark's use of the psalm in this passage is relevant in that Mark is highlighting to make statements about who Christ is, what is happening, and what will come. So I encourage you, of course, to go read all of Psalm 22. So here we have the preeminent David, that is Jesus the Christ, and there is a foreshadowing here from Psalm 22 and finding its ultimate end here in this text at the crucifixion of the true king of the Jews. So like David, Jesus is mocked again, humiliated, and the preeminent king is not only preeminent in rank, but also in his sufferings compared to David. So verses 26 through 27, we find that Jesus is stripped of his clothing and he's put on the cross while his enemies divide up his clothes. Uh, and the inscription is an ironic mockery, right? Uh, and the inscription is the king of the Jews. So they're mocking him while this psalm simultaneously tells them this is the king of the Jews. And not only that, but the idea that a insurrectionist would be crucified, that seems to be the reason why Jesus was charged. He was charged for insurrection, uh, even though Pilate at first was like, I don't see any guilt in this man. Uh, but they were insisting that he's basically threatening the position of Herod, who was a major player in the Roman Empire at that time. So Jesus is placed beside two robbers who, from what we know about regarding the crucifixion, were low-class criminals or also insurrectionists. Uh, the king is humiliated and, of course, on the surface, dethroned by his own. He is thrown out by his own people. In verse 29 through 32, uh, we find that being on the cross, he, he is in an area of traffic that we mentioned before. And so individuals come by and they mock him. And so if you ever wonder why people are coming by and wagging their heads and mocking Jesus, this is why. Uh, but they also mock his statements about the temple. And this again, we find Mark pointing us back to Psalm 22, where the people continuously fail to realize what they are doing and whom they are doing it to. So in this, they tell Jesus, save yourself and come down from the cross, not understanding that Jesus certainly could have done so, and yet he remained on the cross. So the scribes and priests, they join in the mockery, 
with the similar claim as the spectators. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And of course, the robbers join in. He is surrounded by mockery and this ironic mockery because this is the actual king and he could come down, but he chooses not to. So we have this progress of mockery. We have the scope of who is mocking broadening. People are traveling by the authorities who ought to have recognized him, mock him, and even the lower criminals who are dying with him are mocking him. In verse 33 through 36, we find this crescendo of Psalm 22. Uh, there's this quotation where Jesus says, my God and my God, why have you forsaken me? We often put a lot of theological discussion around this. Like, did, did the father forsake the son, right? But hopefully, as you can tell so far, this is an intentional use of Psalm 22. He's, you can imagine someone being in suffering and singing a psalm that they can relate to, right? Like a prayer. And so you have this parallel again where, like David, Jesus has this sense of, when would I be vindicated? My God, why have you forsaken me? Where is my exaltation? Where is my, my rightful place kind of thing? And then you see that the people take his quote and think that he's calling Elijah. Now, the calling of Elijah is, is present because there was a belief that Elijah would return in the end of all things to restore all things. Um, and some later Jewish um, beliefs included the hope that he would appear from heaven in times of need. And so these people think that Jesus is calling Elijah for help, likely to come and rescue him. And the significance of this uh, to the text is to explain what seems to be a really bizarre interruption to the text. And it's also another type of irony, because again, Jesus could come down. Jesus didn't need a savior. He was doing the saving. What's interesting here is that the people provide wine to Jesus, and this wine could have either been a way to appeal to Elijah or more likely keep Jesus alive until Elijah comes. And so this ultimately illuminates further this lack of awareness of who Jesus is in this passage by those who are watching this all unfold. And this is particularly interesting because they're appealing to a tradition regarding Elijah when they certainly knew the scripture quotation. And so while Jesus is making this quotation, and it should have been a marker to, to bear weight on who he is, they didn't see it. Instead, they mishear him and they think he's calling Elijah to rescue him and aid him. Uh, and they try to keep him alive to see whether or not Elijah will come. They're more interested to see if Elijah will come. So the king is before their eyes, and yet they seek another. In verse 37 through 39, which closes it, Jesus breathes his last breath. Uh, the temple curtain is torn, and the centurion makes a positive confession about who Jesus is. Uh, of course, the thick curtain uh, that denied access into the Holy of Holies in the temple is torn. Uh, this is a little bit debated. There's there's two curtains that could have been torn. Uh, this is the most predominant view, and this says that the curtain signified the separation from what was holy from that which was common. However, while we usually put this emphasis on this open access from, from this holy of holies, really this also signifies the temple is, is on its way out. Uh, so fitting to the events of tearing the temple, uh, you have this great irony where it's a Roman centurion who makes a positive confession about Jesus' identity. You have all these people standing around mocking him while he's making these quotations that really should have just been a sign. 
Everything there is that's a sign. Everything that's occurring fits with Psalm 22. And yet it's a Gentile centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. Absolutely just chills. So what are the literary issues? This is one of the things that I was taught with going through narratives is looking at literary issues. So whenever you're doing this, you want to look at how the plot unfolds, the characters, and how they develop. We've kind of already done that, um, but we see that the Roman soldiers act as the opening characters and that they are the ones who crucified Jesus in verse 16 through 24, and they divide his garments. The soldier's development in the narrative is found primarily in that it is the centurion at the end who has the positive confession. But for the others, we only see their arc ending in their mockery. The two robbers who are present with Jesus in the narrative uh, that are crucified with him, their arc and mark ends very quickly. Uh, They just end mocking Jesus. While in Matthew, it's similar to this account. In Luke, we find one of the criminals recognizing Jesus and speaking to Jesus. So this, this differs, but not only here, but in other accounts, Jesus has more to say than his citation of Psalm 22. So in Luke's gospel, you have him responding to the robber and speaking to the father about committing his spirit. And John, he speaks to Mary and John uh, and his completed work. But in Mark, he, he has this very condensed account and really, it just shows you what Mark is highlighting in his account. And so that, that's one of the good things about doing uh, parallels, looking at the different accounts and how they handle things, because you really hone in on Mark is focusing on Jesus's messianic kingship parallels with David here. Uh, and so he, he kind of cuts to the point and gets right to that aspect, while the other Gospels have different focuses. Uh, still the same events, they just record the events in a different way with more detail or less detail. Um, let's see. So whenever it comes to other characters, such as the priest and the scribes, their arc ends very quickly in the mockery of Jesus. Um, the bystanders, however, begin by mocking and then also end in eagerly awaiting to see if Elijah will come and rescue Jesus. So in looking at these present characters and the dialogue that occurs between the crucifixion, It seems as if Mark doesn't want to distract from this kingship of Jesus. He wants to really focus in on that, especially with this emphasis on the ironic mockery and quotations of Psalm 22. So for the entire context and plot, Mark 15 acts as a climax for the passion section of Mark as these tensions throughout the entire gospel uh, really comes into play. So instead of going through the rest of the plot and the overarching uh, structure of Mark, what we find within this passage are various theological realities being displayed. Uh, and the first corresponds with the Old Testament prophecies, which confirm the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. So among some of these prophecies, we find those that are well known, such as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right? But here there's a emphasis on the rejection of Jesus, who we are told is the cornerstone that Israel rejects, uh, which is seen in Psalm 118, 22 through 23. So while the psalm is first applicable to David, as Psalm 22 is, it becomes prophetic in the coming king and the Messiah who would also be rejected by his people. Theologically, this speaks to uh, bibliology, right? The doctrine of the Bible and the Messiahship of Jesus. So in that respect, the emphasis on 22 really is the the key here. And it clearly indicates the kingship of Jesus and ironically so 
uh, given this irony, just abounds. If you just read this with that in mind, it's just everywhere. It's ironic and it's sad. It's a sad rejection of Jesus by the priests, scribes, and those around. However, if we take the curtain to be a splitting between that which is considered holy and unclean, and this open access with the centurion's confession, we find this amplified inclusion of Gentiles in the face of the rejection of Jesus' contemporary Jews. So with that, we find that the kingdom of God or access to God is signified as being open to the things once considered unclean through Jesus' work on the cross. And it's fitting, again, that the centurion is the one who makes the positive confession after this reality is displayed within the text. So the suffering servant in the quotation of Psalm 22 alludes to the theology of atonement. And ultimately, without knowing the rest of the story or having help from the synoptics, the readers of Mark are left with more questions than answered, right, at this juncture. If, if we just read Mark here and we stopped, we're left with more questions. Psalm 22, however, would give them a hint. This is the beginning of the narrative in that there is still a victory to come and deliverance to be experienced at the resurrection and the ascension. The theology of the passage is predominantly centered upon the kingship of Jesus as the preeminent David who suffers beyond David and who will have a more significant and everlasting victory than David. There is still more to come. So the implications of the event in the text are massive when we examine the, the atonement holistically, right, uh, in terms of what it accomplished. But within this text, we find that because of Jesus, we have direct access to God because of his work. The tearing of the curtain would signify that. Um, and we're no longer bound to the cultic context for right relationship with Jesus. And now the room where the, where the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would be, um, is accessible to all. But not only this, uh, that which was once considered to be within the Holy of Holies, that is the presence of God, is now beyond the temple for those who are clean because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We become the temple as the body that is the church. We have access to God because we are now ourselves becoming temples of the living God. And so this is kind of where we get the idea of the priesthood of all believers. At, at one time, it was only a certain appointed individual who could enter into the sacred space and have access to God. But now all believers through Jesus Christ can approach God and have the presence of God living within them. So what's the application? Well, the application for this passage ultimately centers upon the Lordship of Christ and our access to God and how we have access to God and the reality of that. And of course, the corresponding notion that I just mentioned of the priesthood of all believers. So this passage can be applied in first recognizing and exemplifying the confession of the centurion who notes, truly, Jesus is the son of God. The statement is simple, but it's very heavy and has implications for how we operate in our day to day. Uh, in avoiding a practical rejection of Jesus' kingship, we are called to be obedient to our king. Uh, and again, if we parallel this with Philippians, where he, he didn't see his power as something to be exploited for, to his own advantage, but instead died on the cross, this is, this is a beautiful truth. And it's just so profound whenever you think about these, these people mocking him, saying he, he can't save himself, when he was willingly just choosing to, to sit there and finish the work that God and eternity determined to do to redeem people because of his love for his creatures. Uh, regardless, um, so to recognize Jesus as king includes practically putting into practice that which Jesus commanded us to do. His people fundamentally reject his identity and authority when they do not 
keep his commands. Uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? That's what he says. And so the application would ultimately be hearing the word of Christ, but also doing the word of Christ in recognition and appreciation of who Jesus is. It's really what we find in James, right? Um, and we won't do it perfectly. And First John speaks to that, that we will fail, but we have Jesus uh, uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. And you have this in Hebrews 2 with the great high priesthood of Jesus. Uh, and so we just... We need to recognize that access and come to the throne. And so the second part of the application here is relating how we have access to God. We have access to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. That's the, the taxes that we've been talking about from Nicaea 1 to now. So it is in the work of Christ that we can enter into the Holy of Holies, so to speak. And uh, Consistent with the rest of the New Testament, there is no other door to go through to access the Father. We do not need extra doors. Uh, so here, we put this into practice by faithful recognition and proclamation that Jesus is the only way to God and the only means of making one clean so that they may enter into the presence of God in the eschaton, but also that we have this access. We have been given this access, and so we should be sure to go into this room. Go to the throne of God. Pray. Spend that time with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Because of Christ, we have reconciliation. We have adoption. And these benefits of the atonement are crucial for the Christian life. And we focus upon the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection. And the Christian life just flourishes once one abides in Christ in union to Christ, being dead with Christ, but also being raised with Christ in new life. So then we have this application to recognize what we have in Christ and live in that reality uh, of access and intimacy with thankfulness and joyous obedience to our great God. So that's going to wrap up our episode for today. I hope that it, um, it follows. We kind of just ran with it and we went through this text of Mark. I hope that you see Mark and the usage of Psalm 22 in a new light. Um, it was a great joy for me to to see that, to see that Mark in, in this bleak scenario is showing us that despite all of this this um, death and all of this this turmoil, that this psalm is pointing that while Jesus is suffering far worse than David, his vindication is far greater than David's. His exaltation is far greater than David's. His, his power, his authority, everything. And that victory is just a few verses away in Psalm 22. So God bless you all. Have a wonderful weekend. And until next time. Perfect life.